0: We have been uh, journeying to the book of Acts together, uh, if you've been with us. This is our third week uh, looking at the book of Acts. And we mentioned uh, in our first week together, this is a, a significant book. Uh, many people have looked at Acts at one time or another. Uh, but it really is a significant book in the life of the church uh, for a number of reasons. It is, without doubt, our most historical book, uh, accompanied with Luke. We know that Luke and Acts are kind of considered one volume. Um, It's by far the most historical work that we have in the New Testament. So we made mention in our first week together how Acts reads like history. It's it's painstakingly detailed at times. And it really forces you to this crossroads where you either have to accept Acts for what it seems to be, which is legitimate, detailed, very accurate history about the Christ and his church, or... uh, it's a fabrication. It's a, a, a fraud of frauds. But when you read the book of Acts, as we've been doing now for a couple weeks, you begin to get a sense where this is no fraud. Uh, it's too detailed, it's too accurate, and we'll see later in geographical details and such uh, to be a fraud. But it, it kind of forces you to that crossroads. We either accept it for what it says it is or we reject it outright. And we'll talk more about that, about that later. But also we chose Acts to look at it for the weeks we have together. Because uh, Acts reminds us who's in charge of the church. No matter what denomination you come from, no matter if you've been at Coral Ridge for a long time, no matter if you've been here uh, for years or just for a few weeks, we're reminded that that the Lord of the church is the Holy Spirit. It's it's Christ Jesus. And we see this in the book of Acts, that we have this book, we're we're grateful to have this book in the New Testament, where the central figure uh, is the Holy Spirit. You You read Paul's letters and... There's churches that are on center stage or certain individuals. Um, in Acts, you have the Holy Spirit front and center. And yes, it'll be divided between uh, the ministry of Peter and the ministry of Paul. But in and through all of that, we see the Holy Spirit uh, at work playing the central role, building the church that Christ himself promised to build. And we mentioned in our, in our first two weeks together, that's actually incredibly encouraging And it's encouraging because we recognize that Christ Jesus himself has made a promise. He's made a promise to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then he sends his Holy Spirit to do the building on his behalf. And we wake up as Christians, we wake wake up as members of Coral Ridge, and realize, my goodness, we've been enlisted as partners with the Holy Spirit. Amazing. And so far from being marginalized we're also welcomed onto center stage with the Holy Spirit. Uh, my goodness. And we have that promise and that, that, uh, that assurance that what we are up to here in the church, not only here at Coral Ridge, but the church throughout the world, what we as Christians are up to uh, has Holy Spirit power behind it, has Holy Spirit endorsement uh, in and through it. And that's super, super encouraging. And so in Chapter 1, uh, we saw... Christ Jesus ascend back to heaven. Again, remember, the book of Acts is, it follows after the Gospel of Luke specifically, but all the Gospels in terms of, you know, historically. And so Christ has resurrected, and then right in chapter one of the book of Acts, he ascends into heaven. The king returns. We've all seen Lord of the Rings, perhaps, or uh, maybe you're a Tolkien nerd like me, hopefully, so you like hobbits and that kind of stuff. Uh, But in Lord of the Rings, right, the final installment, return of the king. The rightful king comes to his throne. Well, in the book of Acts, you see that happen. The ascension of Christ Jesus back to the Father. The ascension of Christ Jesus to the throne that is rightfully his. But then in chapter two, what we saw is that this king, this ascended, resurrected, glorious king, uh, now is giving gifts from his throne down to earth, down to us. And the primary gift that he gave was the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so the beginning of chapter 2 was dominated with what we call Pentecost, right? The giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And we see that it was the greatest of gifts that this king could give to his people uh, in the time between times, in between his first arrival and his uh, second arrival, which will be inglorious and terrible, at the same time, judgment. And so tonight, we want to look at the end of chapter 2. And if you weren't following along, uh, last week, you might not have known that we were actually in the middle of one of Peter's sermons. And so we talked a little bit about that, the Holy Spirit. He talked about the prophet Joel and those kinds of things. Well, tonight, we finish uh, Peter's sermon. Uh, And so it's in Acts chapter 2, beginning in uh, verse 22. We're going to read a good chunk, so uh, if you have a Bible that's helpful, if not, I think it's also on the the wall. But Acts chapter 2, verse 22, Peter said, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand, that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also would dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your holy ones see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence." Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. But being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses." So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's pray together. Lord God, may this be true in our day. May your word go forth. May we know of the Christ, may we tell others of the Christ, and may thousands of souls be added to the number of your church. Father, would you bless our time here tonight? Would you give us understanding of this text? And would you, in and through it, remind us of your love, of your grace, of the Christ that you sent for us? In his name we pray, amen. Uh, This is obviously a large passage, a large narrative, and we we can't look at everything, but I want to just highlight a couple things here that I think are super important for us. As we, again, we're reading, uh, if you think about it, this is a very the very first sermon um, ever preached in the church. The very first sermon uh, preached after the ascension uh, and after the church is birthed, is born. And so what is Peter doing? You know, Peter, we know, is one of the kind of inner circle, apostles, disciples. Um, So what does he have to say to us? What does he have to say to the people who were originally there? And I think there's a few things that we want to notice here. The first thing... So if, you're, if you're listening, Peter grounds the life of Jesus in real uh, flesh and blood terms. He grounds Christ's life in real flesh and blood terms. Uh, you saw it in verse 22. Christ was a man attested by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did in the midst of real people. And he does this because he wants them to, to remember that, that, that Jesus was a person who dwelt in real time and space, who walked on real roads in front of real people, that one of the first scandals of the gospel is this idea of the incarnation, that God himself would even bother to take on human flesh. We know later in, in Paul's letters that this idea of God becoming a man, God actually identifying with your sorrows and identifying with your struggles in life is foolishness to most of the world. It was foolishness to the Greeks, the Gentiles, that Paul would label them as. It's foolishness today to a lot of people, right? And he said it was a stumbling block to Jews, this idea that God himself would come down and would walk among them and of all things would suffer. And yet Peter reminds them that this is the case. He reminds them that he actually came down into time and space, and he reminds them that we can't can't just uh, shrug it off, right? That too many signs were, were administered. Too many miracles took place. Too many things were done by this man, Jesus, from Nazareth, in the presence of too many eyewitnesses who were actually still around when Peter preaches. Too many things had happened. Too many amazing things had happened, and too many people had seen it. In fact, people even witnessed him after his resurrection. And so what Peter's trying to get his audience to see is that you can't ignore Jesus. You can't ignore him. And that's true even for us today in this world. We a lot of times want to write Jesus off as just sort of, hey, he's a religious figure or he was a good teacher. or But no, the, the signs are there, the scripture's there indications were there. So you can't just ignore Jesus. Again, you're brought to a crossroads where you either accept him, you believe on him, or you reject him outright. But Peter reminds his audience that that's what they've done, that God himself came down. He performed signs in their midst, undeniable signs. And yet what did the people in front of him and in Peter's audience do? They rejected him. And so the reason that Peter does this is because he's trying to establish something here. He's establishing human responsibility. There's human culpability now here with the crucifixion of Jesus. He says they were delivered to to, to lawless men and they crucified the Lord Jesus. So the people in Peter's midst are responsible. They're held responsible for the death of the Son of God. But as you kept reading, you might notice that Peter does something amazing you don't expect. He establishes human responsibility, human rejection of God in the flesh, of Christ Jesus. But then what does he do? He qualifies it. And he grounds the death of Jesus in God's plan. And you should feel that kind of tension. So he grounds the life of Christ in real time. But then he grounds the death of Christ in God's plan. If you were to look in verse, like, 23 at Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So it wasn't even as if it's, like, God took human actions and then wove them into his plan. No, no, it was God's definite plan. It wasn't like God was just looking at a crystal ball and could see in in future time they would abuse his son. No, it's his definite and foreknowing plan that the Christ would suffer and would be crucified and would die. And so we have to ask ourselves, well, how does this work? How is there human responsibility for the death of Christ, but at the same time, God had a plan for the death of Christ? How do we, how do we reconcile that? Now, spoiler alert, I'm not going to by any means put to bed the argument tonight, okay? We talk about this for thousands of years in church history, okay? Much ink has been spilled over this topic, so rest assured, I will by no means, you know, be an authority on this matter. But that's the question though, right? How is it that Peter could accuse them of crucifying Jesus, but at the same time say, but this is God's plan. In fact, you were part of God's plan in crucifying him. How do we reconcile human responsibility with God's providence or sovereignty? And I think what's amazing here, though, is how do the people respond? They're eventually sorry, they're repentant, but they don't have a problem with it. Did you notice that? They don't have a problem There's no reaction in the text. They have no problem with the idea that they were guilty, but at the same time, all of this was part of God's plan. Isn't that amazing? I think it's amazing because what it teaches us is that when we talk of these things of God, you know, predestination or foreknowledge or sovereignty, all these kind of tough topics to, to grasp, we make them into debates. It's as if we want to take, you know, God's plan and and make it an Excel spreadsheet, right? Uh, Make it a blueprint where we can figure out exactly who's in, who's out. You know, when's Christ coming back and how did this all work? And if God's God, then we want to make it an Excel sheet, okay? That's very neat and tidy, and we debate. If you don't see it as my Excel sheet, then let's debate over this, right? But the people rightfully understand that this doctrine of God being sovereign, and, but yet things happening isn't meant for debate, but for doxology. What does that word mean? For praise. It's an instance where we understand God is God, and we are not. But this is a mystery that we can't really get our arms around, and yet it elicits praise. Or in these people's case, it elicits uh, elicited repentance. They go, My goodness, my goodness. And so we see this at work, the marvel of God's grace that He can take even sinful actions, even the worst of sinful actions, and yet incorporate them, and yet use them, make them, if you will, uh, subservient to His ultimate plans of redemption. It's a marvel of God's grace. And that's, I think, the point of Peter's remarks here is that there's this human, wicked, sinful element that crucified the Lord Jesus. But yet he takes that worst of human actions and uses it to accomplish the greatest of results. Atonement for sin, uh, freedom through faith. And so in this passage, again, we see Peter ground the life of Jesus in, in real flesh and blood terms. He grounds the death of Christ in God's Uh, eternal, indefinite plan. Then he does something else. He grounds the resurrection of Jesus in Old Testament promise. Look Look at verse 24. It says, God raised him up, Jesus, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for Jesus to be held by it. Have you ever asked yourself the question, why was it not possible? We know he's God, but why that language? Why was it literally not possible for death to hold Jesus? (laughs) Yeah, Satan would have won. We can't have that happen. But think about for a second, what was the origin of death? Why did death even enter into creation? Sin, right? We know that in the garden, uh, mankind rebels. And so death is the penalty for sin. Death is the price for sin. It's the curse of sin. But we often forget that death, at the same time as being a curse, was a a grace of God. Have you you realized that? It was a grace of God. Um, Tolkien, we thought about him earlier, Tolkien talks about how death is a strange blessing. Okay, And why is it a strange blessing? Because in death, we're liberated. Have you ever thought about that? That it was a curse, yes, but it was ultimately a blessing because we're set free. Set free from what? The flesh. We're set free from the sinful nature that we have inherited. That's why in the garden, what did God do? He not only uh, condemned them to, to die now, but He then also bars them from accessing the tree of life why he doesn't want his creation to perpetually live to eternally live in a state apart from him to live in a rebellious condemned state so they no longer can access the tree of life and they will now perish but in perishing they have the opportunity to break on through to the other side and be given new life to be given a new nature. And that's why Scripture, then, will talk about Jesus elsewhere in many different ways. Romans calls Christ the second Adam because the first Adam failed us, led us into damnation. I always thought it was funny that my parents named me Adam. I mean, the person that led the human race into damnation, right? Um, But the second Adam, okay, right? The second Adam uh, is Christ Jesus, okay? And where Adam failed, Christ was successful. And what did Jesus do? And we see it here in Acts. He goes through death. That all who trust in him might be transferred from the federal headship of the first Adam, now to the second Adam. We might be transferred from inheriting condemnation to now inheriting life. So Christ is the second Adam. But he's also spoken of, as in Colossians, as the firstborn from the dead. Isn't that amazing? Again, the same thing is at play here, okay? The human race will die. But that's actually a strange blessing because for every single human that trusts in that second Adam, for every single human that trusts in Christ Jesus, what will happen to you? Your destiny will be the same as Christ's destiny. You will go to the tomb, but yet you will rise. You will rise. And you will inherit now A sinless, perfected nature. Hebrews talks about Christ as the pioneer of salvation, right? The one who literally blazes the trail ahead of you, okay? Who goes to the greatest of enemies, death, and slays him. And he leads now his procession after him. And we follow in his his train, okay, Uh, through death into life eternal, and so it's not possible for, for death to hold him because he had other purposes for death, and we see that here, grounded, but then, but then Peter goes on, and he quotes from Psalm 16, if you were there in verse 25, and what Peter is also trying to do here is remind the audience, basically, that their forefathers, these are Jews, remember, he's saying, your forefathers knew this. So he quotes from Psalm 16. So if you look at verses 25 through 28, he's quoting from Psalm 16. Uh, and it's a Psalm of David. But what does David say? Interestingly enough, we can go back and read it. Um, verse 27, David says, you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. And so what is Peter trying to do here? He's reminding them that David himself understood this. But the Holy One is not David. Because what did David see and experience? Death and corruption. He did see the pit. They could go to David's tomb and he'd still be there. Okay? And so they go, well, what happens here? And Peter's reminding them, because David understood. David wasn't looking at his own kingdom, but David was looking at the true king who would come, the true son of David who would come, the Holy One who would not see corruption. And why wouldn't he see corruption? Because he's a greater king. Yes, David slew Goliath. David conquered the Philistines. But this king will come, and he will slay death. And he will establish his kingdom forever. But then finally, and lastly, Peter grounds this one other place. If you look in verse 37, sort of towards the end, Peter grounds salvation now. So he grounds the life of Christ, he grounds the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and now he grounds salvation in the astounding grace of God. Look at the 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 reaction of the people. So after all of these things, Peter's educating them, he's unpacking these truths for them, he's convicting them. How do they respond? Verse um, thirty-seven, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles. Brothers, what shall we do? I mean, is there a greater understatement in Scripture? Peter goes, oh, by the way, you killed the Son of God. It was you who did it. And they go, brothers, what what should we do? I mean, what an understatement. And yet, I did the same thing when I was reading this text. We laugh, and rightfully so, but in doing that, what are we doing? We're saying... Can you imagine being in their shoes? Can you imagine being guilty of killing the Son of God? I can't imagine that. And then we go, my goodness, but that's, that's me. But that's, that's me. That we are guilty of killing, putting to death, putting on the cross the Son of God. We cover our mouths in horror. Think about the lyric of the the great hymn that we'll sing uh, at the end. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. But when you read this, isn't there a part of you, when you read this, so brothers, what should we do? Isn't there a part of you that thinks, or expects, maybe a better way to say it, that Peter would respond, are you kidding me? What can you do? You crucified the Lord Jesus. You crucified God in the flesh. There's no hope for you. we got to draw the line somewhere. I mean, yeah, God can forgive the prostitute. God can can forgive adultery, God can forgive thieves and liars, but you put the death of the Son of God, we got to draw the line somewhere. And yet, what do we know from Scripture? What we know from Scripture is that, yes, there's differences in sins, and sins have different consequences, but when it comes to condemning us, all sins are equal. Only one sin. It only takes one sin uh, for us to be guilty. And so we recognize here that every sinner who has ever lived, which is to say every human, which is to say all of us here tonight, myself included, contributed to the death, to the torment, to the crucifixion of God, of the Lord Jesus and yet, with that enormous, that enormous blood guilt on our shoulders, that enormous weight on our shoulders, isn't it amazing how Peter responds, brothers? What must we do? Repent. Repent. And be baptized for forgiveness of sins. And we go. It. It can't be that easy. Surely it's not that easy. There must be something else required, something else we must do, and yet, in that simplicity of Peter's response, we hear the gospel. In that simplicity of Peter's response, we witness the unimaginable grace of God. The amazing grace of God that in his infinite love and infinite wisdom and infinite foreknowing plan, he took even the sin that we committed, the sin that put Jesus on the cross, and he used those things to affect the very pardon and forgiveness of our sins that we need. And it's amazing. And so we see the amazing grace of God. This is the, the, the mystery of grace, the paradox of grace. The question for all of us, and I I pray that it's true, is do we know this Savior? Do we know this Savior and have we put our trust in his life, in his death, in his resurrection and allowed it to change our destinies forever, to change the sentence over our life uh, from guilty to forgiven to welcomed to a child of God? Listen to these words as we close. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one, bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders, ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life, I know that it is finished." I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. Let's pray.